You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, podcasters' journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again. We have a great interview for you this week. In just a few moments, I'll be talking to author, Oak Island theorist, and friend of the show, James McQuiston. James has just released another book that takes his theory on the Oak Island mystery even further. But I'm going to let him explain all that in just a few moments. Before we get to that, I just want to mention something again here. I need your help with an upcoming preview podcast I'm putting together to release next week, just before the debut of Season 8 of The Curse of Oak Island. If you can, please take a second and send me your predictions and what you think is going to happen in the upcoming season and or what you would like to see happen in the upcoming season, your wish list, so to speak. You can email them to digginoakisland at gmail.com. You can also record a voicemail if that's easier and email that to me as well. And if it's you know, if you don't want to email, you can certainly DM them to me via Facebook or Twitter. Please get them in as soon as we can, because I'm hoping to record this this weekend and get it out for Monday. So let's get to it. This is a long interview, and Mr. McQuiston is just an incredible source of information, so you're really going to enjoy it. So let's take a short break here, and when we come back, I'll be talking to author James McQuiston. And joining me now is author of four books on Oak Island, on his theory of Oak Island, James McQuiston. He has been on the show before. We consider him a friend of the show. Thank you for joining us again, Mr. McQuiston. Hey, thank you for having me. And I have to make a little correction. It's now six books on Oak Island. Six? I know it sounds crazy, but we'll talk about it, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Okay. So before we begin, you... I talked to you about, I would say, almost this time last year. Yep. And you had released Oak Island Endgame. And in the context of that conversation, you sort of made it known that this might have been your last one, for at least for a little while. Yes, I thought it was going to be. And I'll tell you what happened was I was uh, moaning to my son one day that I wished all four of my books were in one book, but that's just not how it all came about for me. Uh, the first two books were suggested by the Oak Island team. And then as we got more information, I knew I had to write Oak Island Nights because that was the, my solid theory. And then peripherally, I was getting all this uh, support for my theory. And so I put that into Oak Island Endgame. So he said, well, why don't you just have some fun and write a historical novel a lot of people like to read their you know like to get their information that way and i had, hadn't really done one before and so i thought well what the heck i'll try it so i it was pretty easy actually and uh i wrote oak island the novel now i say easy it's easy to write it but it's not easy to get it done because you have i have to go through two proofreaders who are merciless right and then i have to of course get proofs and uh from the printer and all that you know so that part of it is the logistics, which isn't always much fun. But um, 
so I did that. And then uh, I had uh, talked a little bit about how Franklin Roosevelt was connected to the Mayflower. And so uh, just looking for something to do, uh, I started looking into whether there'd be anyone else on Oak Island as a settler or a searcher that would have anything to do with the Mayflower or the Plymouth colony. And I ended up finding out that there were a ton of them. And that, in fact, virtually every known early settler and searcher was either connected to the Freemasons, which we know there were a lot of Freemasons, the Knights Baronet, which is my basic theory of the treasure, and uh, people from the Plymouth colony. And uh, six to 10 of them with a direct connection to people who signed the Mayflower Compact. And the reason why, well, this is the 400th anniversary. In fact, in just uh, 10 more days, it's going to be the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. And uh, the reason why they would know is because one year later, William Alexander, the central figure of my story, uh, was given Nova Scotia. And one, one of the main reasons why was so that he would bring Scottish soldiers over to chase the French Catholics out of uh, what they called Acadia, uh, Port Royal Acadia, which was only a three to four day day sail from the Plymouth colony. Right. And the Plymouth colony uh, ran into a lot of bad luck. Their sister ship couldn't go with them. So that cut down the number of people. And then a lot of them suffered from scurvy. And so they lost like half their people. So they ended up overall with probably only a third of the people they had intended to have in the settlement. And so the French, who were had been up in Acadia for you know a ten or a dozen years or so, were in a much stronger position to come down and attack them. And it wasn't so much that they were Catholics, although there was a lot of you know fighting between Protestants and Catholics. But there was fighting between the kingdoms of England and France. And so because they were French and because they were Catholic and because they were more powerful, uh, the people in uh, New England wanted them out of there so that they didn't have to worry, you know, for the shoe to drop. So uh, William Alexander was given Nova Scotia. It took him a few years to get enough people to agree to go over there, but eventually they drove the French out and took over uh, Acadia and called it Nova Scotia, which means New Scotland in Latin. So that's how that all came about. Now, it sounds family connections seems to be one of the threads through all of the nonfiction Oak Island books that you've written. Um yes. And sort of how what I would say is uh, what maybe some people would think is just a coincidental, but then it starts to pile up. Uh, and, and Roosevelt is a great example of that. Uh, you mentioned Roosevelt a little bit, and I know this is Endgame stuff and not the new book. We'll get to the new book at the end, which I haven't read yet. So I, uh, you know, I have to give you a mea culpa there. I haven't gotten to it just yet. But Endgame talks about Roosevelt and I felt that Roosevelt was a great example of what we mean when we talk when you talk about these sort of family connections that the more you dig down it just seems more and more incredible right yes and I didn't 
begin to write about Oak Island from that point of view, but I had a strong foundation in that type of writing because of uh, doing my own family's history, a 286 book page book on my own family history. And I was always fascinated by who was connected to who. And, you know, when you look at a lot of these people from Scotland, I mean, I'm Scottish uh, in spirit anyway, and I look at them as big heroes and stuff. But when you, Scotland's only about the size of South Carolina, maybe. So most people in South Carolina, I mean, a lot of people in South Carolina, even today know each other. And back then when there was less mobility, people married people within walking distance. So to find a lot of people related to each other is not, is, is really the norm, not out of, out of the ordinary. So uh, that kind of changed my perspective a little bit that these people, it wasn't just that person, but it was that person's family and what other families that person was related to that is the real story. And so I started a little bit on that with Oak Island Knights. Um, but when I went up in 2019 to the war room, I had a lot of that, uh, particularly involving the Alexander family, the Strachan family. Now, Al Strachan's the man that stole this big treasure that is central to my story. And also the Ramsey family that founded uh, Dalhousie University uh, about an hour from Oak Island. And I started finding these incredible connections of those people. So after I presented uh, in 2019, when I came back home, I started, I just naturally just kept investigating these family connections. And so Endgame is. Uh, as you said, is kind of the main theme of it is who was related to who and how would that have affected the story. In Endgame, I had come up with a little bit of this connection to the Mayflower. And so when I started, see, I'm kind of addicted to it. And so even if I think that's the last book, (laughs) I got to do something, you know, so and I have my nice office up here, so I'll come up early in the morning and I'll just start poking around and I'll find some old book from the 1600s or the 1800s or whatever. And I'll be, Oh my gosh, that guy's related to that guy. So, uh, when I realized that there was such a connection to the Mayflower families and to other families that settled within a dozen or so years at Plymouth or at Boston, I realized I knew that they would have a way of knowing about it because since Nova Scotia was founded to essentially to protect them. They obviously would be paying attention to what was going on in Nova Scotia because, you know, to allay their fears. So um, when I found so many of them, I thought, well, uh, just coincidentally, it was the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. But that seems like a somewhat of a central part of the story because you haven't had the benefit of reading the new book yet, but I've connected the chapels. Now, there's there's three men there, Renwick, William, and William's son, Melbourne, or they call them MR Chapel or whatever, and they were on the island forever, and they all trace back, and uh, uh, Jeremiah Rogers, who was a privateer that owned property there, he traces back to uh, Thomas Roger that came on the Mayflower, 
And uh, there's other ones, too. And then there's a lot of people that just came in after the fact, once once the foothold was established by the Mayflower people, then Plymouth expanded, and then they moved up to Boston. A new group came over 10 years later and established Boston just 40 miles up from Plymouth. But they're all Puritans, or at least they were led by Puritans. So it was the same type of people uh, settling there. So uh, I think anybody would just love, just because Mayflower's been such a part of American history, they would love to see the early history of what happened and also how it was connected. And I even have, of all people, Sir Francis Bacon connected. Yes, um, you do. <laughs> yeah, because he, there were in, in the summer of 1620, the Mayflower Company was chartered. Well, a petition was made to charter, and it was chartered by November. And that was an overall ruling and investment group in England. And that's sort of separate, but really not disconnected from the Plymouth colony, because when those people landed where the Plymouth Company had their grant of land, they just they sailed out of Plymouth, England, and they just naturally named where they landed Plymouth. Um, but uh, the petition to create this separate uh, colony was uh, the first signature on it was Sir Francis Bacon. And he had already had a colony or a, he had had a land grant in uh, Nova, or Newfoundland. And he had a, nep a nephew or a cousin of some sorts uh, came over and he's the man that actually named Cape Cod and Nantucket and uh, uh, the Elizabeth Islands and all that. Right. All that uh, he had done that 15 years before the Mayflower even got there. So um, his mother was a Bacon, was Dorothy Bacon, this guy. So uh, what it pointed out was that Bacon was somehow involved all the way from Newfoundland all the way down to New England. Mm in trying to get English or uh, English and Scottish settlers placed over there. And part of it, you know, a good share of it was because the fortunes of the UK or Great Britain, whatever you want to call it, were waning a little bit compared to the French and the Spanish. And um, also they were getting a lot of broken men and broken families just drifting around the countryside. And they had to do something with those people. They didn't want to just line them up and shoot them down. So right. they 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 looked to them as the people who could go over and and start exploring and finding gold mines and sending back beaver pelts and lumber and you know all all the riches that the New World held. Now, again, I just want to jump on this theme of what we might think is coincidence, but isn't. Um, in your research, the idea of Franklin Roosevelt becoming a part of digging here becomes less and less coincidental as you read through it. Now, he's yeah. related to the Mayflower through the Delano side of the family, if I'm correct? Well, uh, not actually the Delano. Um, well, in a sense, the, the Philip Delano who came over 
he was supposed to come over with the sister ship of the Mayflower, and he came over the next year. So he wasn't specifically on the Mayflower, but his um, but he's part of the Plymouth Colony. But his uncle that he lived with, Francis Cook, was on the Mayflower, and he was one of the signers of the compact. And then he also descends, Franklin descends through his uh, mother's side, uh, or no, his father's side, through uh, Howland. I think it was John Howland. I, I probably get called on that, but I think it was John Howland who was one of the principal um, people on the Mayflower. He was one of the ones that got off the boat and went and explored. And then also uh, Warren Delano, his uh, Franklin's maternal grandfather, they descended from a Richard Warren that was also on the Mayflower. And in fact, Richard Warren and this Howland man, and I'm looking right up right now what his first name was, um, they were two of the men who went on shore three different times trying to find a good place to have a colony before they brought everybody else on shore. So they worked close together. Yes, it was John Howland. So he descends, Franklin descends directly from John Howland and uh, Warren, Richard Warren. He descends from Delano, who was a, a nephew of Francis Cook, who was on the Mayflower. And I have since learned that he descends from a couple other people. So, wow. uh, you know, the, the, he had a definite connection, and so did Warren Delano, uh, to the Mayflower. And, you know, I point out in my new book that I'm essentially saying that a legend of some treasure that got buried there when they were trying to settle Nova Scotia, and my theory is that they got chased out. Well, we know they got chased out in 1632. And they left the treasure and other things behind because they didn't know if it was just a bump in the road right. or, you know, they're going to come right back a couple months later or France and England were going to settle a new treaty, whatever. And uh, so could it be kept alive? Because it would be 10 generations from the Mayflower down to Franklin Roosevelt. Right. And what I point out in my new book is that in my own family, there's a 10 generation uh, legend of a, treasure which we have the will where the treasure was left to some people we have a grant of texas land that where the treasure went to buy ten thousand acres of texas we have letters in the family we have uh, court filed documents um, where people were saying yes i'm related because <laughs> they all wanted a piece of it one letter they're complaining that it somehow got their share got robbed from them. Right. So that's 10 generations. And in fact, it's more than that because I have a son and he has sons. So, and they, and at least my son knows about it. So the point is that yes, it could, could be, especially if that treasure was never recovered and, and people know it's out there and yet it hasn't been recovered. So um, yes, I, to go back to your original point, I really switched gears from, what I think led up to the burying of the treasure, which was in my books, Oak Island 1632 and Oak Island Nights, to the families involved and in how they were, they made up the majority of the original people that went to Oak Island as soon as they could. Because, see, it wasn't until 1749 that the English actually had enough power 
gained enough power back in Nova Scotia to create Halifax, which is about an hour from Oak Island. And it wasn't till um, 55 before they really started bringing in people to populate it, uh, English speaking people. And it wasn't till 62 before they actually surveyed Oak Island. So uh, there was a lot of dwell time between 1632 and, yes. and uh, 1750, or 1762, let's say, when Oak Island was surveyed. There's a lot of dwell time in there where it was just constant battles between the French and the English. And it went from Acadia, you know, it, it went from Acadia to Nova Scotia in 1621. Then it went back to Acadia in 1632. And it just kept going back and forth, back and forth to where both the English and the French were now referring to it as Nova Scotia or Acadia, in quotes, or the opposite, Acadia or Nova Scotia. Because they wanted to be sure in their official documents the territory they were talking about. So there isn't any question that both sides were talking about the exact same land. And uh, so from from uh, about 1655 onward, or I mean 1755, there was enough foothold for the English that they could start populating places. And that's about when Oak Island starts getting you know, the earliest people. And uh, so if I took a look at all those early people and virtually every single one of them had a connection to my story, Uh, they had connections to the, uh, actually there's a, uh, what they call a collateral relative. All that collateral means is you could, you could say what it is, uh, seventh cousin twice removed once over lightly or whatever, right, you know, right. but it's just too ridiculous to type it out every time. But uh, a collateral relative of William Alexander moved there, and that was John Monroe. Well, a collateral relative of Al Strachan moved there, and that was John Strachan. Who I was uh, just going to mention. I, you, John Strachan is, your story revolves, or for the and people who have, haven't read all these, you have to read them all, but... Um, it revolves around a stolen treasure by an, uh, a Scottish guy in the six, early 1600s named Alexander Strachan. And he had a relative who owned the plot of land that <coughs> Nolan's Cross was found on, correct? Yes. 200 there's years about, later. Yeah, there's about six, I think, lots that it, that it stretches over. And he owned all of them. And he owned them right during the time period that the Truro Company was uh, digging there, and that was the first company really to bring in um, what you'd even closely call modern equipment. You know, right? The, the Onslow Group. Well, you you had the th- three diggers to start with. Then you right. had the Onslow Group, which brought in more people and financing and everything, and pumps and all that. But they were still kind of rudimentary digging, and they didn't really understand what they were in for. But by the time the Truro group came along, now they were starting to really take this serious. And right. uh, even though they didn't have the equipment we have today. Um, and unfortunately, all of that, it kept the story alive, but they made Swiss cheese out of the island because one of their main tools was just an auger drill, which just drilled down, you know, and it had a big wide blade that would run things back up to the top. So they dug a ton of or they drilled a ton of uh, 
drill holes. And they did dig some shafts, too, some full shafts. And it's just amazing to me when those guys dig up an old shaft and you see the size of those logs and how well they're put together. And you think somebody did that by hand, basically. Amazing. Back in the 1800s. And today, if you even got a crew together and said, this is what you got to do, they'd, they'd probably all uh, say, well, forget it. I got another job at Walmart or something. You know, <laughs> Anything but that. Uh, but I have to tell you that, uh, just to expand on Roosevelt, so after, well, Alexander chartered a good chunk of Nova Scotia to this French leader, his name was Claude de la Tour, and Elstracken signed the charter for it, and that was in 1630. And I've proven, I think, beyond any doubt for me anyway, that Part of the grant was called a place called Merligash, that that included Oak Island. And I have maps to show it, and I have quotes from old documents from the 1600s and all that. And I have some people in Nova Scotia that don't agree with me and other ones that do, including Doug Crow. But regardless, the point of it is, is that if that's the case, that's the first individual to own Oak Island, even though he may have never stepped foot on it. Uh, this Latour man would have been the first individual named to have o- owned Mahone Bay and thus Oak Island. He um, tried to get his son to go in on, on it and his son wouldn't do it. But later on, when a lot of these people died off, his son wanted to become the French governor of, of uh, Nova Scotia or Acadia and he fell back on his father's grant for this Merligash area as part of it, because it went from Mahone Bay all the way down to the Cape. So it was a good chunk of Nova Scotia. And so that was part of his proof that he owned it. So when the English took it back again under Cromwell, Cromwell recognized his grant and his Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia titles. So he owned essentially owned Oak Island plus a whole bunch of other land, but he was a knight baronet also. Well, when he sold out, uh, it he sold out to a man named Thomas Temple, who wasn't a knight baronet when he bought it, but after Cromwell was out of power and Charles II came back to reestablish the royal family, he made Thomas Temple a knight baronet of Nova Scotia. So now he got another Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia owning it. And Franklin Roosevelt descends from the Temple line. He doesn't descend specifically from Thomas Temple, but he does descend directly from Thomas's uncle, also named Thomas. And I show all that in my book. So now we have him descending from the Mayflower people, and we have him descending from a knight or having a forefather who was a Knight Baronet of Nova Scotia. Um, who owned Oak Island. And of course he was a Freemason. He was a grandmaster of Freemasonry. Right. So he checks off every single box in my current theory. And he's the most dramatic. Plus of course he's the most famous person that was there, but there are other people that are very similar and uh, many of them check off at least two boxes, two out of the three boxes. And so um, it's just I mean, I'm just blown away myself with uh, the connections and so thrilled that I could make them. And 
the thing is, people say, well, yeah, but that was 10 generations ago or whatever. But people kept the records. That's how we know it. And it was important to them. Just like I can go back 10 generations with my, at least with my father's side. I can't with my mother's because mm -hmm. they came over during, or just before, well, just before World War One, and lost track of everybody over in uh, Poland and Austria, where they came from. So we can't go back there, but we can go back. You know, part of it was uh, the Presbyterian religion kept a lot of records. Uh, there were a lot of military records. Uh, if you were in any way connected to royalty, you have uh, Burke's, I think it's called Burke's General Armory, which they record um, uh, peerage, you know, in relationships, who had what son and all that. So there's tons and tons of information out there that can put this puzzle together. And that's what I've been doing, just finding the pieces and saying, oh, my gosh, that relates to this, you know. Well, you know, so one of the things that I, you know, because I'm I'm somebody who can't, you know, I think about the 10 generation thing. And and I, I've said on a couple of times in the show that, I, God, it seems so hard to believe. But we, I think we as Americans, because we're so um, immigrant populated here. We don't realize what that immigration from, you know, Ireland in the 1850s or whatever to the United States does to our knowledge of our own family. And if you meet somebody, you know, who is Irish or something, I'm just to use that as an example, or Scottish, um, their family, they know exactly where their family's from because they've been from the same place for 800 years. Right. They haven't made this journey across and lost a lot of records and split with other people in their family. Uh, so... But you're talking about a Roosevelt family that has been in this country for literally as long as any people could be and has that kind of almost European connection to their family. You, yes. write, you write in Endgame, I've said for a long time that I think a few families knew a lot about the treasure and a lot of families knew a little about the treasure. So in your general feeling is that so many of these people who came here and took part in this treasure hunt, they weren't just people who were lured in by pirate legends or, uh, you know, even Roosevelt is so easily dismissed by a lot of researchers as, oh, well, he was just financing and, and uh, you know, he really wasn't part of it. He didn't really take part in it. You know, he was just, he was just here for a little while. But these connections just start to build. And, and in, in another connection for him uh, is that his partner was uh, Henry uh, Bowden. You probably heard about him. He's yes. the guy standing next to him off to the left, if you're looking at the photo. He has, he's a shorter guy with a mustache. He almost certainly was a cousin of some sort to Franklin Roosevelt, and I've shown my genealogy genealogical study on that too so um you know a couple of stories that exemplify what you've just said is uh we have a another story in the family that involved our family and the martin family and it happened 500 years ago and so i was over in scotland and it, it involved this castle that was right below the martin farm and so i talked to the guy at the top of the farm about walking down to the castle. It's all beat up and just about gone by now, but, you know, we know where it was. And his family at that point, this was uh, 
15 years ago, probably, but his family had owned that same farm for 500 years and which would be back to that time. And so I started telling him what I, why I wanted to go down there. And he stood there and told me the whole story that our family knew without me even having to tell, I thought I was going to be telling him the story. (laughs) He told me the whole story. And he said, I never thought ever I would meet a McQuiston, you know? And, uh, so, um, and then uh, just another little uh, thing when I mentioned that other family treasure, that all happened down down in North Carolina, and then I went to Tennessee and Texas. But uh, there's part of the story where they buried, uh, they put this uh, keg of gold in a creek in North Carolina to hide it from Cornwallis because he took over the McQuiston home there. So honest to God, a few years ago, about 80 of us went to, Greensboro, North Carolina, and tried to find that creek and tried to tried to find that site. Even though we knew the gold was gone, we just wanted to see the creek where the gold would have been put in. Right. So, I mean, that's how these things stay alive in families, um, you know, and we got an approximate, you know, but we couldn't, you know, pin it down. But we got an approximate based on every little bit of information you can get, you know, and we found the graveyards of the three guys that came over in the boat in 1735. And we put a big stone there, big uh, $2,500 stone in the old graveyard and stuff, you know, so people keep it alive and, you know, part of it's the romance of it. But I think when people left those countries and they'd been there for a thousand years, you know, all their ancestors were buried there and that's what, they basically knew. So when they were getting on a boat and knowing they probably were never coming back, they were leaving the old country behind and the old ways behind, but they were also leaving their ancestors behind, you know, the graves. They could no longer go and visit their mother's grave or whatever. So right. um, it it meant a lot to them very deeply and emotionally, uh, more so than you just think of some guy on an adventure and he gets on a ship and sails to America. You know, there's a lot more to it than that. So the family connections um, are really helping support my story. And I'm happy about that. And I think one of the other things that, um, again, I'm quoting from Endgame here. You said uh, uh, that you thought, I think William Phipps, who was a famous privateer, we'll get to him in a second, was also looking for the treasure. I think the money pit discoverers, Daniel McGinnis, John Smith, and Anthony Vaughn were looking for it too. So basically what your theory is, is that perhaps this wasn't as, well, first of all, people knew that Strachan had stolen this treasure, correct? Yes. That yes, was not, so that, that was wasn't it. a secret of any kind. Nope. nope. So the treasure was out there and families had this connection to it. Can you do me a favor and connect how the treasure stolen by Strachan would end up being sort of knowledge to uh, not just these discoverers. And and I don't mean specifically, I mean, sort of uh, you know, how generally this could have happened or even to people coming over in the Mayflower. How, how did this all sort of, was it like newsworthy? What, do you know what I'm saying? Well, I think that it was intended to finance Nova Scotia, and there could even be a possibility that the fix was in to rob it for that specific pur- purpose, because the first people that were involved in the Knights Baronet, uh, beginning the Knights Baronet, were 
Strachan, who stole the treasure, William Alexander, who uh, was leading the charge and let Strachan be his partner, but also William Keith, who was the son of the man that was robbed, and Robert Gordon, who was like uh, a major intelligence officer, you might say, for both King James and King Charles. So you get those four people in a room, and they're deciding that they're going to form this organization and go to Nova Scotia. And the only one of them, honestly, at the time, maybe Gordon had some money, but Keith's money was stolen by Strachan. And Alexander had already spent a lot of his money sending two previous expeditions to Nova Scotia. So the only person in that room who wasn't desperate for money was Al Strachan because he had robbed, you know. And uh, just as far as how the treasure, why I think treasure might have ended up there is because I'm a fellow with the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and they're associated with the Scottish National Museum and the Scottish National Records. So through a ton of emails, um, I questioned all those organizations as to what they knew about the treasure, and um, they knew that the treasure was robbed but they had no idea what happened to the treasure. And the contents of the treasure are mentioned in the court case. They're mentioned in the Freemasons records and they're mentioned in the Privy Council, uh, which was the, like the cabinet of the King in those records. So it would not be mentioned in those three places if it wasn't a real situation, but none of those places have anything anywhere. And, and neither do these three major Scottish organizations have any information on what happened to the treasure. So if the treasure was being stolen or at least appropriated to support Nova Scotia, a lot of people had their own investment in Nova Scotia and the whole thing fell apart in 1632 due to a treaty, not due to their ability to create what they wanted to, but due to a treaty between France and England the rug was pulled out from underneath them. So uh, people would know that all of this money, including additional money that was put in by the people who were trying to, uh, who became Knights Baronet, because it was a purchase title, all that had to go somewhere. And again, nobody would have known if this was just a bump in the road. I mean, we have the advantage of 2020 vision on it, you know, uh, but they they uh, wouldn't have known. And a lot of times they'd play both ends to the middle. I noticed that even with the kings, they'd play, they wouldn't burn one bridge while they're trying to build another one because they never knew what fate had in store for them. So um, I just think that a lot of people had heard about it in their families, including the three original people. And just to quickly explain to them uh, or about them, Anthony Vaughn, I've traced his genealogy uh, to be connected to a William Vaughn, who was a very close friend of William Alexander and uh, had introduced Rosicrucianism to him and to the king. I traced uh, John Smith, his father, or his uncle was uh, Hector McLean, and for all intents and purposes, it looks like Hector McLean was the seventh knight baronet in line of the McLean knights baronet 
So he would have had knowledge through that source. And McGinnis, uh, the f very first person that signed up after those original four people I told you about, he was actually Innes of Innes, Robert Innes of Innes. And um, I'm not so sure that that's where the McGinnis name came from, because that's a Eastern Scottish name, but it could have. But the McGinnis clan that was out on the on the west side of Scotland, they were connected to the McDonald's. And my ancestor, um, his, uh, his, he was Donald McDonald McGushton. He was one of the earliest baronets, and he was the McDonald's were so powerful at the time that the king made him second in line to Robert Gordon. And when the Gordon line died out in 1908, that line became the premier baronet. So Sir Ian MacDonald McQuiston, which is the Gaelic for McQuiston, is currently the premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia. So the McGinnis family was extremely close to the MacDonald family and to the McLean family. So they could have known through, through that. And I didn't go into extensive, like, like a lot of people celebrate their last name, but they don't look so far much into the last name of their mother. Right. And that family might have a tremendous uh, lineage recorded also. And I, one thing I found out is that the women seem to be more inclined, and this is broadly speaking, not about Oak Island, but women seem to be more broadly focused on what their mother's maiden name and that family history was. I know this is a big generalization, but just from my own <laughs> experience of doing this for 30 years, the men seem to be more interested in the father's line. And that, you know, could, there could be natural reasons for that. So anyway, the point is that you could be neglecting a mother's genealogy and missing the whole point, you know, cause they, if you just focused on the father's genealogy. So anyway, there's uh, Endgame is somewhat of a continuation or is continued in Oak Island and the Mayflower, except that the focus is principally on people that either came on the Mayflower, many of them signed the Mayflower Compact, or others who came with it within the next several years that settled either in Plymouth or Boston, which is just 40 miles away, or expanded out into Rhode Island and Connecticut. Because what happened was Boston and Plymouth were essentially led by Puritans, but not everybody on the Mayflower and not everybody that came over in successive years were Puritans. So uh, the Puritans back home didn't have a lot of power to control government. That's why they left. But once they got over here, they did. So a lot of people just didn't like the Puritan lifestyle because it was too strict. So they moved on into places like Connecticut and Rhode Island right. and even into New Hampshire. And so... But they were they still knew the same people. They still traded with them, went fishing with them, whatever, you know, but they just did not like the strict Puritan way. You had mentioned Phipps, just to touch on him. I was just gonna go back to him. <laughs> okay. Well, uh Sir William Alexander's private secretary was named James Philp, P-H-I-L-P. I also have a document that has it as Philip, 
And uh, he saw when when Alexander died in 1640, that same year, James Phelps sold his property in Scotland. And there's nothing I can find nothing else about him after that happened. James Phelps, who was the or Phipps, who was the father of William Phipps, shows up in uh, Maine in uh, 1646, just six years later, and there's no real specific information about him. But what's interesting is when he died, his wife married the partner of uh, her husband, and she gave her maiden name as Phillips, not Phipps, but Phillips. So I looked up, uh, you know, did some research on names, and Phipps, Philip, uh, Phelps are all, uh, and even Phelps are are all variations of the name Phillips, and they were just shortened. People just shortened the name. Uh, and back then, I mean, my gosh, my name's been spelled probably eight different ways throughout history, and yeah. it's not uncommon. If you have a, well, even a simple name like Smith is sometimes spelled S M Y T H or S M Y T H E. Yep. So. Um, and Johnson, it could be J-O-H-S-O-N, or it could be J-O-N-S-O-N, or J-O-N-S-E-N. You know, so uh, even a simple, the simplest names out there have been spelt in a variety of ways. So um, it's at least possible that William Phipps learned about this treasure from his father, who would have been the man who wrote up almost all the documents concerning the Knights Baronet. And signed them all as the witness, uh, because his name is written down many times as a witness to these documents. Now, I don't have 100% proof of that, but um, Phipps came to Nova Scotia in 1690 to uh, again sub, uh, try to submit the French, who were making various raids down into uh, New England under the guise of being Indians. And... Uh, and they may have had Native Americans or First Nations people with them, but uh, it was essentially being driven by the French. So he went up there, and he says right in his journal that he's searching for plunder by land, by water, and underground. Well, uh, of course, we know, we assume there's something buried underground on Oak Island. And uh, I believe this medallion that w appeared on my Oak Island Knights book mm -hmm was an honorary uh, knighthood medallion given to him. I tracked it down. I talked to the head of all knighthood in England. I talked to the British Museum, you know, all kinds of sources. It's all in my books. But we do know for a fact that he made it to La Have. Well, there were native uh, trails that went from Port Royal across the hills to New Ross, which is where the medallion was found. And those are known to have existed and in fact, they tried to make a road follow them, but they only got as far as New Ross and never connected it down to Halifax, which was the goal was to connect Port Royal on the one side to Halifax on the other. But they know that the trails existed there. And so uh, it's not that far over the mountain from Port Royal for his men to go. And if, in fact, they made it to La Have, that's a further trip than New Ross. And they would have probably went right through New Ross to get down to the coastline to La Have. So there's 
even though you can't say, I know William Phipps was in New Ross in 1890, you can surmise that he was because that's the way the trails went. And what's interesting, a lot of people don't know this, but New Ross was named for a, a guy named Phipps. And he was the laird of New Ross in Ireland. And he was part of that road building project to get that road built. And it ended at New Ross. And so they called it New Ross. So, uh, uh, and the guy that financed Phipps, his uh, grandson, I believe his grandson, might be great-grandson, was uh, one of the serve, first surveyors on Oak Island. And, and this was before that that 1762 survey this was like 1759 and his name was james monk he was a, i believe the grandson of christopher monk who financed phipps so you have these same names ending up in the same general That's area amazing. uh yeah i know it's an and uh so um and there's a lot of them i mean those are some of the highlighted ones but there's many other names uh, uh I, I guess you'd say lesser figures in all of this history, but they still tell the same story that people knew something went on in that area. They were looking for it. And, uh, and somehow they, they beat it in onto Oak Island and that depression. And, uh, once, once that depression was found, then it just went crazy with people coming in that would have had a knowledge of, right. of this story. Uh, including eventually Franklin Roosevelt, all of the early, all of the early searchers, well, the majority of the early searchers and settlers come out of my three groups until the end of the 1800s. And then, of course, Roosevelt goes there in 1909 with right. his somewhat cousin, Harry Bowden or Henry Bowden. That's another little mystery I figured out was he somehow, somewhere, he, in some places he's recorded as Henry Bowden in other places he's recorded as Harry Bowden. So that bugged me until I found out that Harry is a common nickname for Henry in England. <laughs> and so he was just using one or the other. Uh, but uh, so uh, that, I would say that that, la that one with Bowden leading the charge and, and Franklin being an investor somehow that was probably the last one of the old guard, the last of the group that knew something. After that, it spread out to people from all over the country. Who were just treasure knew. hunting. Yeah. And they saw they, they now knew about it because it was being in the papers and the magazines and, you know, stories in magazines and papers. So after that point, that was probably the last uh, like I say, the last vestiges of the people that right. actually kind of had some hint of what was going on and everybody else was just saying, what, why are they digging on that Island? I want to go there too and get a piece of it. So and you might've noticed that I don't get into much of what specifically happened on the Island. Right. And there's a reason for that because so many other people have, I mean, it's been picked to death with all the way back from Reginald Harris, who, he's kind of credited with writing the first book on Oak Island and all these other great authors, uh, uh, Graham Harris and Les McPhee had a great book and, sure. and Darcy O'Connor and, uh, even currently Randall Sullivan, all these people have 
delve down on that. And, and there's different, differing stories in different areas. And, and if I were a hundred percent in charge, I would have one person just trying to find the most common story, you know, the common elements out of all of these books to try to say, well, this is the, let's say average story. This is the average story of what happened based on what everybody's found. And one thing I'll say uh, about Randall Sullivan, he does not mention Nova Scotia being named that way in 1621. And he does not mention Sir William Alexander in his little timeline of Nova Scotia. But what he does do, which I loved, was that he points out that when the depression was found, there were uh, some tree trunks with moss growing on them and some saplings growing in there. And I didn't know this, but the uh, Oak Island team had got some arborists or tree experts in there to give their estimate on how old the pit could have been if that was the situation it was found in. And it points to the 1600s. And uh, Randall Sullivan pointed that out in his book that not only he, but these arborists have come to the conclusion that it would have had to have been in the 1600s in order for there still to be some stumps there, but saplings growing just because of the right. growth nature of trees. So I love that part of the story. So, <laughs> and, you know, I heard Marty say to the team one time, I, it, it, not in my presence, I've only had one meeting with him and that was a zoom meeting with him and Rick, but he's never been to my larger presentation on in the war room. But he said that it's, uh, and he wasn't talking about me in this instance. He just said it's kind of a phenomenon for theorists to find lots of things that support their theory. And I agree that that, and I don't, I don't plead innocent of that. But when you get so much stuff that it's just incredibly overwhelming and you can't even hardly describe it to people in a book and you're leaving out half of what you've even found. <laughs> and you keep writing then, more and more books. <laughs> yeah. Then it's like, well, eliminate half of my evidence. Yeah. Or even eliminate three quarters of it and look what, you know, take the best that's left and look what it shows. So, um, so I, I do take that to heart and I try to find uh, at least a second uh, mention of a of an instance, but you know more than that if I can. And a perfect example is the treasure list. You know, I got it in a Freemason book, I got it in the Privy Council book, and I got it in the right. court case. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that I do that takes so long. I mean, these books. Again, the easy, the easy part to some degree is writing them. The hard part is the research because it's I get so many files on my computer. And I try to name them in ways that when I need to go look them up, I can find them again. But uh, and then I've got a shelf here full of about 400 books and uh, I've got bookmarks stuck in there. When I need this point, it's there's the bookmark right there. But uh, uh, that research, uh, thank God for Google and Wikipedia. And I know that sounds a little <laughs> bit like a cop out. But the one thing about Wikipedia, especially, is if they have an article on somebody, they have, uh, you almost always have to put your source material at the bottom. And the way Wiki works is that you have people that just like to bust people. So they go in and question all 
you know, questions right. stuff. That's that's where they get their jollies. And you have people that are serious historians who want to know where you got that piece of information. So at the bottom of any real serious Wikipedia page are all these books listed. And so a lot of those books have been scanned in by universities. They might be a book from the 1600s or a book from the 1800s. Or I just found one the other day from 1755. And uh, so there's there you might get an overview of the story from the Wikipedia site. But when you look down at the bottom and you see the original sources, you can go back to that original source. And right. I'll generally always find more in the original source than what was on the, the Wikipedia page. So uh, I've purchased a ton of books. I've uh, been, uh, you know, I've looked at a lot of old books, like Rutgers University is one that scans them in. Cornell's another one. There's a, I think, I think it's called Hathi Trust, H-A-T-H-I dot trust that scans a lot of them in and they're the original books right so i'll, I'll scan read them you know and i'll do a, a lot of them you can do a, a search so i'll look for william alexander and i'll find 10 pages that mention them and i'll read every one of them and if i think i need to go back a little bit or forward a little bit to get the information so that's where a lot of it's coming about and then other people contact me doug's actually contacted me about two or three important points and said, you should look here or there, or can you find something on this? Um, uh, how I found the Freemason book, which had not only the treasure in it, but had the, the list of the first seven Freemasons and the dates they were installed. They were installed as non-operative Masons, stone Masons, but they were what we would think of today as Freemasons. And that came from Cal Hancock, who is the grand historian of the Grand Lodges of Nova Scotia. And he didn't point me to that specific book. He pointed me to two other books. And while I was looking for those books, I found that book. So it was such a, I mean, it kind of made my theory. And uh, so that's how it comes about. I'll tell you the spookiest one is that I didn't have the final end of William Alexander's story. I had a rough idea of it. I was up in uh, Nova Scotia for a war room meeting, and I had a, a extra day, which generally you don't. They book you for every day for something, either to go to the Yukon Archives or the uh, College of Geographic Sciences or okay. up to New Ross or whatever. You know, right, they right. only they're not buying you a vacation. <laughs> they're getting <laughs> you up there for three or four days to uh, grill you and make you help work for them which is understandable because they got money in it but um so i went down to this i had some time to kill and i was kind of tired but i went down to this little uh, little town nearby and um there was this bookstore down there and i'd been in it a few other times and i was i was crossing the street i noticed there was a bookstore on the side that i was on that i had never noticed before i went in there it was all used books so i went in i asked the lady if they had anything from the 1600s, she laughed and said, no, everything starts here in the 1800s. She said, but I can show you uh, the books on local history. And I said, well, okay. And I was kind of reluctant. I didn't really, I'd probably already saw most of them. So we came walking around this corner and I see down on the bottom shelf, a book that had no, no title on the, on the heel of the book. 
Uh, it was just kind of a beige-looking heel on a brown book. And I walked around the corner, and she was showing me these local history books. And it was like there was a blur in front of me. I couldn't even see the books. And I just turned around. I said, what is that book down there? And she said, I have no idea. Pulled it out, and it had the whole story, a hundred and some pages of the whole story about how Alexander was one of the catalysts for the civil wars in Scotland, England, and Ireland, oh and why he lost his fortune and died penniless. And I mean, <laughs> you can imagine. I mean, I, I I was leafing through the book, and I saw that story, and I'm like, you got to be kidding. And I'm sitting down, and, and I said, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I just can't. I want to read it right now. You know, so <laughs> I'm scan reading it and everything. And uh, then I bought that book, and that finished off that part of the story for Unbelievable. me. Unbelievable. So information comes from odd places when you're least I'm expecting like, it <laughs> and i'm like the collector i'm like the the guy well, that it's all the medium that's going through to get it into a book form to to show people and i always i get tired at the end of a book and that's why i usually say this is my last book plus i think <laughs> i think nothing else is going to come my way i'm not going right. to find anything else you know i've 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 milked this cow or kicked this dead horse for as long as somebody possibly can and then lo and behold, something big like the Mayflower connection comes right. my way. And I'm sitting on it going, this is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. And next year's the 400th anniversary of the naming of Nova Scotia. And I'm going to sit here with all this information and not write anything on it. So um, it's out there for the people to read. If they don't, you know, if they don't want to, that's fine. But it's there for posterity. And they, you know, Oak Island team has all my books. And in fact, uh, you know, I send them to Rick and Craig and, and Marty and uh, Doug, particularly, any you know, extra copies to them for their personal library. So the evidence is not going to go away, even if not everybody in the world bothers to buy my book. Uh, and I've been on the show five times now, and yeah. who knows for the future? Well, the, here's the thing about your work. Um, you know, a lot of theorists take dots on different pages and kind of put them together and then connect them for you. And sometimes as you're looking through the research, you stop and you say to yourself, well, <laughs> you know, do those dots really connect? I mean, what, but that's not what you're doing. What you're doing here is sort of laying out the dots for us. Yeah. And, and, leave, in. and, and all of these places in this mosaic of stuff that makes it so, as you, it's just sort of building on itself as you go. I mean, you started in what twenty sixteen. Your first book came out. Yeah. Well, I started with them in twenty sixteen, and it came out in the spring, pretty much of twenty seventeen. But I'd been working on it and working with them for like six months or so. And as you read through the books, it's almost like a real time evolution of this <laughs> yeah. theory. Yes, it is. You know, and so, and sometimes I think, oh, you know, that changed my story from Oak Island 1632 slightly, but I'm not going to go back to that book and change it because it, it, I don't want to destroy that evolution of the theory. I, exactly. You know, people, it's a it's a whole separate element than what's in the books to show how the story developed. The first bit of evidence I gave them or I guess if you want to call it evidence, but I was working on, I was updating my family history book that I told you about. And, and I had just fixed the chapter where Sir Ian 
McDonald McCushkin is the premier nightmare of Nova Scotia. I had no idea what that meant at all. I emailed with him a few times just because he was a family member, but I didn't know what that meant. And then I, I didn't start watching Oak Island until the third year. And so I'm sitting there uh, watching Oak Island and I was watching it more for the guys with the big toys, you know, <laughs> and all that, you know, I mean, I just, uh, I knew about it. I read the original article, Reader's Digest, but it was really the whole idea. And I even told Rick this one time. I said it, what what appealed to me was it was just like as if I got my buddies in the pickup truck with you the shovel and the chainsaw in there, and we said call Billy and tell him to get his get his backhoe because we're going right. to go up there and figure this damn thing out, you know. And so that was the point of view I was coming to the show at. But then I'm sitting there watching it and I'm thinking Nova Scotia. Oak Island, Nova Scotia, Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia. Gee, I wonder. So all my initial me email was, was, hey, did you guys ever hear about the Knights Baronet of Nova Scotia and ever connect, uh, connected in any way? And they called, uh, well, they wrote back and said, we want an hour-long call with you. And uh, that's what that's how the whole thing got kicked off. And it's just gone nuts since then. I've been up there. Uh, three years in a row, I would have been up there this year. I was told, except for COVID, because yeah. it was it was t- trouble for even them. I yes. mean, all of them had to uh, had to isolate for fourteen days once they got there. They got there at different times. I, I believe it was. Uh, well, I know it was Rick first, and then Marty, and then Craig, and uh, th- so they were they'd be up there in isolation, but they just couldn't drive over to the island, you know? Right. Uh, but, uh, so the challenge is this year, uh, between that and hurricanes, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just been incredible. And I'm so anxious to see what they've done and what I've garnered from the little bit I can see on the previews and on different websites that have little hints on them is that they brought in some kind of huge crane Yep. They brought in uh, some uh, of that stuff they made the uh, cofferdam out of, but they uh, did not use it out there in the cofferdam. So they had to have used it somewhere else. Must have dropped it and, in a hole. Yeah, uh, yep. that would be the logical conclusion, but I don't know that. Um, and one thing that was great interest to me was that uh, – there's uh, one in one of the previews. It shows, I believe it's Rick holding a map, and it they're pointing to something in the water offshore, right? With one hand, but the thumb is covering up. You can see <laughs> 1600 AD, <laughs> and 1600. You've looked right at this as much time. as I have. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I took like a ton of screenshots as I was put, playing that on my phone, so I could get a good copy of that map and try to look at it but what's of interest and i don't know if this is where this is going but when i was up there last year uh rick set up a meeting for two hours with this captain mckinnon robert mckinnon he's been a lifelong sea captain and treasure hunter up there and the story is really funny so i'm going to take the time to tell it to you if you want to edit it out it's fine but no go ahead uh he met with the boys the day before i was to meet with him and so that night, Doug came and met me at the lounge at the Atlantica Hotel. I think they call it the Oak Island Resort now. But that's where they put me up every time. And he said, 
He said, that guy really gave us hell last night, and I'm not sure we're going to use anything of it. Uh, but he's uh, he, he's very salty language, and he likes to control the, the conversation. So I know Rick set this meeting up with you, but if you're uncomfortable, you just tell him, well, I just got five minutes left or something like that. They're waiting for me or whatever, and bow out of the meeting. So, um, and he said, there's a good chance we're not going to use any of it. But he said that he wouldn't tell us where this ship was, that he, he dove on a ship in the 1970s before the treasure trove long. He found 32 cannons on it, cannon, however you'd say that, and he found silverware that had a, a stag emblem on the handle. Well, the stag emblem has been the emblem of the Strachan family since 1309, as far as they know. They've got records that far back with the stag stamped on them. So you can imagine how that, thrilled me and as it turned out he had the same archaeologist underwater archaeologist that worked with mel fisher on the atosha look at what uh details he was able to draw when he was diving and the guy said that it was uh he guesstimated the ship was built around 1600 and that it was either an english or a spanish ship and he could tell that by the trunnions on the cannon well trunnions are the little pieces that jut out at the back of the cannon that seated into the thing that holds the cannon steady on the ground or on the ship. And only Spain and England were using those types of trunnions at that time. So it's 50% chance it's an English ship. It was built in the right, right time slot. It's near Oak Island and it had silverware on it with a stag emblem on it. Well, some of it he brought up. Well, what happened, what put the screws to a lot of of treasure hunters uh, and really hid away a lot of information was that the treasure trove laws came about around uh, 1980. So he was no longer able to dive on the ship to find anything else out. And he didn't want to give up his information. And just like that medallion that was found up in New Ross, that was found in 1975. Well, that guy kept it secret all of his life until he showed it to me and Doug and Rick because of the same reason. He didn't want the Nova Scotia government to take it from him. So anyway, to get back to Captain McKinnon. So I meet with him the next day and he was very salty and I loved it. It was like being in a movie with this guy. I mean, he just, <laughs> it was all, you know, it was all genuine. This guy was so genuine. And, uh, he also liked to command the conversation. And at the very end of it, he said, well, I hope you don't mind the, that I commanded the conversation, but I got to, I only have so much time and I got to get said what I want to say. I said, Oh no, that's fine. That's fine. And he said, I really gave them hell yesterday and they're probably not going to use any of it. And I'm just wearing the best poker face I can wear because Doug told me all this the night before that's just going to happen. But I, then I got to thinking as I was talking to him, I wonder if Rick wanted me to try to milk this location of the ship out of him somehow right sweet talk him or something but he didn't come right out and tell me to do that so i thought well i better not fail my mission so i said well where is the ship and he just looked at me funny he said i'm not gonna tell you he said treasure hunters don't tell their secrets or they won't be the ones that get the treasure and i laughed and then he said if anybody's diving on that ship while i'm alive it's going to be me so anyway, it was just a great, it went on for two hours. And I told him, I said, my God, I can spend two more hours talking to you. Just incredible stories. And uh, one, another major thing that, well, two other major things that he helped with my theory is he said, there's, they would be heading into hell 
to cross to try to cross the North Atlantic in March or April, which was when they were ousted from Nova Scotia. And he said the very best place to pull in would be uh, Mahone Bay and behind Oak Island, because when the causeway wasn't there, you could pull a ship right behind it and just hide out from the storm because it's far back in. Which is what everybody would do back then. I mean, that's. And the other thing he said, because part of my theory is that the Alexanders had a, that foundation at New Ross is actually the old Alexander estate. And uh, he said they almost certainly uh, spied on the French overland and attacked them overland at Port Royal. Because he said, you can imagine, Port Royal sits on the Bay of Fundy, which has the highest tides in the world. Right. And they peak usually at 50 foot, but I guess they've had, they've measured them before at 70 foot. And so he said, you can imagine trying to fight the tide to come in to fight a battle with people that already have their cannons sitting on a hillside. They're solid on the hillside and you're in a ship that could run aground or catch fire or whatever. And you're fighting this high tide. He said, there's just no way logically that you would sail all the way from England over to the other side of Nova Scotia and try to make an attack. He said, the logical thing is you pull into Mahone Bay, go up over the hill. They wouldn't expect you coming. You'd have the element of surprise. And he said that there were a lot of native uh, trails that the Europeans found that went from New Ross over to to Port Royal. So he said, that's where, that's what I think they did. He said, that's how I think they attacked them, whether your theory's right or not. I think they came over the mountain from Nova Scotia or from New Ross over to Port Royal rather than by ship. Because he said they just would... It'd just be a death wish to try to attack it by ship. So anyway, he helped out my theory a lot, and he really didn't know it yet. I mean, we were talking about it, but he had right. never read any of my books. And uh, so that was a really a really great experience to talk to him that year. And uh, I in, 20, in, in 2017, I had a two-hour presentation, and they didn't use any of it. But <laughs> we opened up a whole new bunch of trails, and I got to meet everybody. And, and that year, Oak Island wasn't uh, buttoned down so much. And I got to go all over Oak Island. I got to take the the golf cart by myself. Uh, Charles took me. Uh, a producer from from uh, Prometheus took me in to see Sam Ball's uh, foundation. You couldn't get near it. They had a, a, a they couldn't get within. I think it was two hundred feet. I'm not sure. But you could see it pretty plainly from there. And we were allowed to crawl over the walls and everything that he built. And uh, so that was free and easy. Well, the by the time I got there in 18, they had built, because I was the last one to present in the old war room. And then they built the new war room. They had it all built that day, by that day. And right after I got done, they started pulling everything off the wall, all the articles and artifacts and everything moving them up to the new war room. And I had to sit on that for about a year because they, they, the lady that was doing it zipped her lips and said, top secret. And I said, okay. So, <laughs> uh, so when I went up in 2018, uh, I again had a two hour presentation, but it was much more condensed and focused. And they did uh, use a little bit of that. And that we also went up to New Ross that year for two hours and uh, talked about the medallion. And we had a third meeting where the gentleman that found the medallion brought it in 
but there was no there were no cameras from Prometheus because it was a Saturday and they were all off work because they worked very long days. And uh, so all we have is photographs of that event. Um, but anyway, so out, out of all of that, they still only used about 15 minutes. So when I was going up in 2019, I thought, well, I'm going to beat them to the punch because I'm going to compress my this year's presentation down to one hour. And then if they use 15 minutes of it, they've at least used a quarter of it because uh, so much gets just, left just on chopped the table. up. Yeah. 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 So um, honest to God, they they had uh, had me meet with that guy for two hours and then I had to wait around for them to get out of the field. And it was almost dark by the time they got back. So they had put in an eight or 10 hour day. And I mean, they work. People don't realize it. But they're out there working and they're coming I back know. whipped and dirty. Their hands are filthy and whatever. <laughs> and they came in there and I thought, well, when I saw in the shape they were all in, I thought, well, this is going to be short because they're they're all beat to heck. <laughs> and they kept me in there for four hours. Oh, my God. They had an hour presentation. They kept me in there. I was tired. I was probably more tired than they were. And uh, so in uh, that year, uh, we were in a conversation about stonemasons and I was talking about how when Alexander sent his men over here, you had to be an artisan or a craftsman. You couldn't just be a broken man because they wanted to populate it with, quote, good people. So I said they would have had like miners and farmers and blacksmith and leather workers and stonemasons. And um, and I was sitting right smack across from Gary and, and Rick was just on the right, uh, on his left, my right. And they both kind of looked at each other and smiled. And Rick says, I think we need to take a little break here. Now, we needed a break, but I, and I didn't know what was up. So uh, somebody leaves the place, comes back over and slips something to Gary under the table. And I saw that going on, but I really wasn't focused on it. I mean, I was, you know, when you're in there, it's the heat of the moment. You know, you're, you're, yeah. this is your big chance and you're That's at right. the war room table and all that. Um, so they said, well, Jim, can you just start again from what you were just talking about to remind us where you were? Because they don't tell you what to say, but they might tell you, you know, can you repeat that or whatever, you know? So I said, well, I was, I was just saying that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And at, when I got to the word stonemasons, Gary picks up the stonemasons chisel that they found and handed <laughs> it over to me. And I said, oh, my God, a finishing chisel for a stonemason and and rick goes well how do you know that and i said well it's obvious i said look at the it's pointed and the head of it has hardly been hammered at all with a, any kind of metal thing it was hammered with a wooden right it had to have been hammered with a, a wooden hammer and uh and so i looked it up later and i found some just exactly like it that were old ancient stonemason work so anyway again that was really cool to see it and actually hold it, but I had to keep my mouth shut about it because <laughs> when you sign the NDA, there's That's principally it. there's principally three things, elements to us, all written in legalese. But one of them is that you're not gonna badmouth them. Right. Which I wouldn't anyway. My gosh, they've been so good to me and it's so much fun. I'd never badmouth them. Um secondly, you're not to reveal if you're going to be on the show. Well, I couldn't reveal that anyway, because I never know till about the week before, <laughs> because they told me, you'll know if you're going to be on the show when you watch the previews from the right, week before. Right, right. And one year I did get a call from Rick who said, 
I can't tell you the date, but I can tell you it's going to be within the next three weeks. And it was exactly three weeks from then. But I saw myself in the previews the week before, so then I knew what week it was. Uh, so I wouldn't be able to tell that anyway, because I don't know when I'll, when I'll ever be on there. Even if I had gone up there this year, I still wouldn't know if I was going to be on the show, so I couldn't tell that one. Uh, but the other thing is that I can print in my books what I find, but I can't print in my books what they've showed me that's going to be in the upcoming season because, of course, they don't want me to ruin the season. So of course, right. two of the things I couldn't tell were the big things was uh, that they built a new war room. And the second was that they found that stonemason's chisel. And there have been other things, too, but those were like the two that I remember the most. And uh, the reason why they built the new war room, just so everybody knows, is that there are three reasons. One was that the old one was just basically a tool shed, and they were trying to convert it into this meeting room, and it wasn't the sturdiest thing in the world. Secondly, they had all these artifacts and articles and photographs, things like that in there, and they had no central air. So they just had a window air conditioner. So they were concerned that there wasn't climate control in there and that these things would deteriorate. But the third reason was that they were right smack across from the causeway. So they could be filming, and here comes in five people in a car and get out and start yelling and screaming because they're on Oak Island and interrupt the film. And so they don't want to spoil it for the people coming across the causeway. So they build a, a duplicate that's just a tiny bit bigger, but it's very sturdy and the lighting in it's better and it has central air in it. And it's on the other side of a gate around the corner so that uh, the tourists can't, you're not allowed past that gate. So the tourists can't spoil the, um, uh, filming, but they can still get the joy of seeing the the uh, interpretive center, and if somebody's out there, like Gary's walking around, or Dave, whoever. Right. And uh, I, I uh, think I might have told the story on your show before, but it, it is so funny, because everybody there is exactly like you see them. <laughs> That's their nature. They don't change anything. And uh, if anything, Gary's quite a bit more the clown or the comedian than they show. Cause I mean, he's always on, he's always, the performer. <laughs> um, but, uh, so Dave, you know, has that famous word he likes to say that they have to bleep all the time. So the first year we were up there, we were sitting on the deck of the old war room and I was with, uh, my wife was with me and, uh, one of the ladies that's a big player in the background who keeps anonymous was there. And I had just met Rick and Marty and Charles, I think, were the ones that were there. And here comes Dave. And so my wife says, well, there's the bleep bleep man. And he said, you're bleep bleep right. Except he didn't say bleep bleep. And we all burst out laughing because here it is mixed company. He never saw us before in his life. And it didn't bother him one bit because that's just in his vocabulary. Right. And he's not going to change it for anybody. And uh, so... Uh, when you go there, it's it's easy to fill at home if you've been watching the show, because the people are the same there as they are on the show. That's awesome. Uh, Rick's just the nicest guy in the world. I mean, even I saw that little clip online here where they were answering questions and they asked Marty what his proudest moment of 
about his brother was. And he said, well, he's just such a nice guy. He's just incredibly nice guy. Well, he is. Uh, he's, he's done yeah, a lot yeah. of favors for me uh, that I won't go into, but I mean, he's just uh, a nice yeah. guy. And uh, Marty is the not so much the skeptic, but the businessman. You know, he couldn't have made $100 million if he wasn't. That's right you know, asking the right questions all the time. And so that's kind of the feel you get from him. And Charles is just, uh, he took me over to see Nolan's Cross Rock, one, two of them. One of them we got to with an ATV, but the other one we had to walk down through the muck to get to. So on the way back, I saw his uh, Mason's ring on one hand. And I said, oh, there's your Mason's ring. And he said, yep. Yeah. And then he says, and look at this. And he pulls out of his pocket the, a Knight's Templar ring, a Masonic Knight's Templar ring. And I said, oh, well, why aren't you wearing that? And he showed me why, and uh, I don't want to talk about it, but um, he just had the biggest smile on his face. I said, my God, you are such a happy man. He said, why wouldn't I be? I work on a island every day hunting for buried treasure. I mean, it's boy, like, boyhood okay. stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, he's very calm, and he listens all the time. Uh, you know, he's paying attention. And he only asks questions where it really, really, really matters. But Doug is the studious guy, man. He, I've been with him in the library of the College of Geographic Sciences studying and at the, at the Nova Scotia Archives studying. And he just, he's just super serious. And he's like me uh, as far as like looking through every document that he can find and, and what does this mean and taking notes on it how could this connect you know just constantly um so I, we don't always agree on every part of the theory but i certainly agree that he's a tremendous tremendous historian and a tremendous asset to the team uh, beyond belief beyond what a lot of people even know yeah because he's worked with me on probably three big projects that are only incidental to my book but they were major things that took three months yeah. To figure it's, out, you know, yep. uh, it's always great to hear these stories. I mean, to, to hear the genuineness of these guys. Listen, Mr. McQuist, I gotta let you go uh, because we've been we could do this for all day long. You and I, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> uh, if people want to get into the weeds with uh, the history and the family history and the connection of the Mayflower and all that. Um, I, all I can say is read my books. Uh, I don't have a Kindle version because I I'm a, I was a graphic art artist by trade, and I put so much effort into making the pages look pleasing and everything. Uh, and as soon great. as you Kindle it, it jumps all over heck, and I just can't stand to look at it that way. But uh, um, I, the uh, for what I have in the books and what it would cost anybody to travel the, as much as I've been to Scotland three times and Nova Scotia yeah. four times. Uh, it's a cheap price. Oh, uh, uh, then they're all you know. great. And, and, and I have the new one. It is here. End game is the one that I think will blow your minds. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure this Mayflower one's going to do the same thing. Cause you could almost feel as you're reading through once I saw that you were released the Mayflower, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause you could, you could see sort of the prequel of it in Endgame. <laughs> With yeah. some, there's, there's some mentions of it in there. I mean, you're just going to read through these family names and you're just going to be amazed at what you're reading here. So Amazon is the place to get them? Yep. Yep, you can find them all there. Um, thank you very much, sir. Okay, thank you.
Take care. So that's it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. My sincerest thanks once again to James McQuiston. I think I can literally do a dozen interviews with him and still not scratch the surface of his knowledge of Oak Island and the history of the surrounding area and really all of Nova Scotia. Don't forget, you can find his books on Amazon, including his latest, Oak Island and the Mayflower, released you know just a few weeks ago. Please make sure you subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please do us a favor. Give us a rating and a review us with a five-star rating there on iTunes or wherever you listen. That really does help get the word out on us, and I do appreciate everyone who's done that so far. You can also follow the show on Facebook. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like there. Same way on Twitter. Put in at Diggin' Oak Island. You'll find us there. Great way to interact with other fans of the show and to keep up to date on all the news and that kind of stuff. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Don't forget, I'm hoping to compile your predictions for Season 8 and your wish lists, what you would like to see happen for an upcoming preview podcast. So send them in. You can email them to me or DM them on social media, whichever works for you. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.